I know what you're all thinking. What the hell was that music? What happened to dun, 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 and all that? Well, that is the new music to let you know that we have some I Don't Know the Podcast news. The news is, I Don't Know the Podcast now has an incredibly professional-looking website, www.idontknowthepod.com. On that site, you can find all the episodes, see links to friends of the show, you can even leave a voicemail, and it might be featured in the show. So that's news item number one. News item number two is... Competition winner! I really need to find a new fanfare. Right, right before the Christmas break, I said that if you liked, shared, retweeted, or left a review for the show, you'd be in with a chance of winning a limited edition I Don't Know the Podcast t-shirt. Well, some people did just that, and their names have been entered into the I Don't Know the Podcast supercomputer. So let's see who won. And the winner is Jennifer E. Nunez. Congratulations! Please get in touch with your address and your size, and that quality garment will be with you soon. Now, with all that out of the way, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to I Don't Know the Podcast, episode 42. Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Arthur C. Clarke is probably best known as a science fiction writer and co-writer of the screenplay for 2001 A Space Odyssey. But Arthur wasn't only interested in robots in space, he also had a fascination with the paranormal. And this was demonstrated when he made the 1980 TV series Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. From his adopted home in Sri Lanka, he showcased various mysteries from UFOs to the Bermuda Triangle, and along the way demonstrated his weird obsession with fish. Did he solve any of these mysteries? I don't know. Is this TV show as good as his books? I don't know. I've never read any. Does this show stand up as well as 2001? Sadly, no. But anyway, listen on to find out what else I don't know about Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. The year was 1980. The year that the Rubik's Cube made its debut. The Empire Strikes Back is released in cinemas, and A Dingo Ate My Baby in Australia. It was also the year that a young K-Mill first saw on TV an elderly gentleman strolling down a beach holding an incredibly large umbrella. As he walked slowly by the lapping waves, we found out that this was Arthur C. Clarke. At 11 years old, I had no idea who this guy was but he seemed to be interested in all the things that I was interested in too. Things like UFOs, Bigfoot, and Stonehenge. Actually, I'm not really interested in Stonehenge. If you go there, it's incredibly disappointing. But anyway, let's see what the 1980s had to offer us in regards to the mysterious world. 
Mysteries from the Files of Arthur C. Clarke. Celtic god, really. A sex symbol. Just like that. As you can see, we know nothing. Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World began where a lot of TV shows do. Episode 1. But this wasn't just Episode 1. This was... Episode 1. The Journey Begins. Does an ape man walk the uncharted forests of America's northwest? What unknown monster of the sea grappled with this US Navy frigate in South American waters? Why did people raise up this enormous circle of stones in Orkney 4,000 years ago? Who drew this giant, the largest figure in the world, on Chile's loneliest mountain? What hands fashioned the skull of doom? Does it bring death? Why do stones move by themselves in California's Death Valley? Yeah. That's the sort of thing he's going to be getting into. Mysteries from the files of Arthur C. Clarke, author of 2001 and inventor of the communication satellite. He didn't actually invent the communication satellite. He had the idea, but it was a bunch of boffins and scientists who actually invented and made it. It's a bit like me saying, I invented the dog pee alarm, an alarm that tells you when your dog is peeing on the rug. I came up with the idea, but I haven't invented it. Now in retreat in Sri Lanka, after a lifetime of science, space and writing, he ponders the riddles of this and other worlds. That must be nice. Mysteries have intrigued and amused me ever since I was a child and read stories of fishes falling from the heavens, of giant sea monsters attacking ships and luminous shapes moving through the skies. I'm not sure I would have started with the fish bit. Maybe you should have eased into that one a bit more. Over the years, I've classified them in order of strangeness as mysteries of the first, second, and third kinds. Now, I would never accuse Arthur C. Clarke of plagiarism. He is a fantastic writer, after all. But I can't help but feel that he might have borrowed that from somewhere. But his classifications go as follows. Mysteries of the first kind are things that would have baffled our ancestors but are easily explained today. Mysteries of the second kind are things that are yet to be fully explained but there are clues as to what causes the phenomena. And finally, mysteries of the third kind are things that have no rational explanation, like ghosts, UFOs and the Kardashians. Even in this small island, there are extraordinary things on every side. 1500 years ago, a king of Sri Lanka built this fantastic staircase. Why? We can only guess. What he's looking at is a stone staircase that goes up a steep cliff. We may never know its purpose. What made a tyrant king create this palace with its pleasure gardens in the sky? 
I think the clue may be in the words tyrant and king. It's a starting point in a journey through our mysterious world. Hold on to your hats. Here we go. Well, here we are in the middle of India on a beautiful, bright, sunny day. It might be beautiful for him in his safari suit sheltering under a large umbrella, but it doesn't look like a beautiful day for the locals around him who are pulling up heavy fishing nets and beating clothes on rocks under a baking sun. Yet we're waiting for one of the most awe-inspiring phenomena that the whole natural world can show, a total eclipse of the sun. A splendid example of a mystery of the first kind. In a few minutes, this brightly lit landscape will become perfectly dark. Obviously, this is a mystery of the first kind. An eclipse is understood by just about everybody apart from remote tribes, people and pockets of Cornwall. And for something so easily explainable, he spends a lot of time of this show on it, showing us the solar eclipse and, well, I, I cut it all out. That wonderful eclipse is what I call a mystery of the first kind. Or in other words, not a mystery. However, this series is mostly about what I call mysteries of the second kind. There we don't have the answers, though we may have many clues. The first example I'm going to give is a literally striking one. It took place on another beach in Scotland a few years ago. From the sweltering heat of India to the freezing windswept coast of Scotland in the summer. It was in 1966 that a terrifying visitation came to the beach cafe where Mrs. Jean Meldrum and her mother, Mrs. Evelyn Murdoch, were working. Actually, that's not Arthur. He only seems to do the warm weather reporting. I looked up because I heard this noise getting louder and louder and there was like a, just like a ball of fire. It was like orange in the middle and it was luminous white round and it rolled right along the side of the cafe, when the, the wall in the cafe, and it came to the window and it came out the window. And I came up, lifted up the way to have a look to see what this was, and the thing came out the window and battered across the front of my chest. And then it just, well, it vanished, because I picked the kid up and I went inside, because everybody was panicking by this time. But I was sore for days after it, and just there was nothing else to see after it had gone. But it was just like a big ball of fire. For our American listeners who may have a hard time understanding that, I'll explain. A big ball of fire came into her cafe through the window. It hit her in the chest and then went out the other window. She also picked up a child that was in the cafe for some reason. All of a sudden, the whole kitchen that I was standing in just were lit up luminous white. I couldn't understand, it was very frightening. And then the people, the screaming went on till the beach was empty, the cafe, people had all run out the cafe. They ran out like lightning. And the beach attendant, who had a wooden leg, he usually sat on the table just next to the counter. I'm not sure what a beach attendant is, but I would imagine that two legs would be the minimum requirement for the job. And you never send him move so quick in all your life. He was gone with the rest. Oh, OK, he seems more mobile than I thought. And the following day I discovered the two gas jets on the top of the cooker were packed right through and we had to send it to the blacksmith in Creole, the local blacksmith, to be repaired. They have a blacksmith? I thought they were just from the olden days or the historical documentary Game of Thrones. But what could this ball of fire have been? This man, Professor Roger Jennison, who's in charge of Kent University's radio telescope, 
collect such tales. Indeed, he's had such an experience himself on board Eastern Airlines Flight 539, coming into Washington one stormy night. Hopefully he can spread some light on this mystery. Well, all of a sudden, just after one of the more intense crashes of lightning, there appeared from the pilot's compartment a most beautiful blue ball about the size of a football, near enough the size of a football, a lovely thing, which moved at a slow pace about this sort of speed. He seems to like blue footballs a lot. Down the aisle of the aircraft, a fast walking pace. I could certainly feel no sensation of, of heat, although it passed at arm's length from my face. I suppose it must have been a few seconds, I can't remember exactly how long thereafter, that the air hostess came clambering up the aisle. She flopped into my lap, she put her arms around my neck, and she said, did you see that St. Almost fire? I'm not entirely sure what accent he's trying to do there. Well, I tried to console her that it wasn't out St. Elmo's fire she'd seen. St. Elmo's fire, by the way, are the beautiful corona that you see over the tops of the master ships and things like that. Well, I thought it was a shitty movie starring Emilio Estevez. But this indeed was ball lightning. We'd indeed been very, very fortunate to see at very close core quarters ball lightning actually travelling down the middle of a screened aircraft. Ball lightning? Ball lightning is still a major scientific mystery. In fact, until quite recently, many scientists refused to admit that it even existed. Even today, 40 years on from this TV show, scientists are still not sure what ball lightning is. But there are quite a few theories as to what it is. But Arthur doesn't want to get into that right now. In the case of other mysteries of the second kind, we often have quite good films and photographs, yet we are still arguing about their interpretation. See, he's straight on to the next mystery. Does this film, shot in 1936, show the Loch Ness Monster? Yes. Yes, it does. Did it surface once more, 41 years later, to be captured again by the camera? Is this the footprint of the Yeti, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas? Wait. You show us two Loch Ness Monster photos and then just go straight into the abdominal snowman? And does this shaky film, taken in a forest in Northern California, really show Bigfoot, another ape man who has so far eluded all his pursuers? Now some people out there have said that my research doesn't go deep enough. But what the hell are these guys doing? They're just listing stuff. And the narrator keeps doing just that. Listing more things that perplex him. I hope this is going somewhere. Apart from the films and photographic evidence, for these mysteries of the second kind, there are perplexed and often frightened eyewitnesses who'd like an answer just as much as I would. Oh, good. This is going somewhere. Gently. Water bailiff Alex Campbell reports he's seen the Loch Ness Monster 18 times. Not only does Scotland have blacksmiths and one-legged beach attendants, but there's also a job called a water bailiff. I had to look this up. Apparently, a water bailiff is appointed by the Scottish government to enforce laws relating to salmon and trout. So, he's like a fish cop. His closest encounter came one night as he rode in a boat with a policeman friend, Constable John Fraser. There was this terrific upsurge of water. Terrific. I knew right away what it was. But poor John Fraser didn't, and he was scared stiff. Yeah. The people cop was shit in his pants, but not Alex Campbell, fish cop. And he said, what in the name of heaven is that? Oh, I said, don't worry, John, it's okay. 
will be okay. Yeah, stop your crying. I'll protect you. I said it's messy. Oh, that calmed him down a bit. But this surge kept going on. And then after what seemed to be two or three minutes, the surge still going on, we heard it breathing. They not only saw Nessie, but heard it breathing. And it was fantastic itself, that, because it was exact, sounded exactly like a horse that had been running, and it was sounded like this. Just like that. He should stick to fish and leave the horse impersonations to someone else. And without any explanation, that's where they leave Nessie and go on to the next mystery. This Belgian helicopter pilot, Colonel Remy van Leerder, was menaced by a gigantic snake. He was operating in the Congo. Giant snakes? Shit! Now when I came down on that snake in his hole, on approaching it at the minimum speed, I would say at 20, 25 miles, and I would say at about 25, 30 foot up, the snake raised up by about, I would say, 10 foot. And I could very clearly and closely see the head, which was looking, and I could not make a better comparison with a very large horse. So what Inspector Clouseau is saying there is that his helicopter was attacked by a giant snake whose head was the size of a very large horse. With big, very, very big jaws looking triangular. And you're just standing up like there to me, and I, I feel and I'm convinced if, it, if, it, if I had been in its range, it would have struck at me, it would have been striking me. Holy shit. But again, without any attempt at an investigation or explanation, the TV show moves on. The steamy airport at Palmasur, set deep in banana country, near Costa Rica's border with Panama. What could be going on here? Do they have a banana bailiff? Dr. Luis Gomez is director of Costa Rica's National Museum. He's flown in to hunt for any clue which might explain one of the world's most intractable mysteries, the giant stone balls of Costa Rica. Huge and uncannily perfect spheres, handmade and of unknown origin. They're even beside the airport runway. The big balls of Costa Rica. I've never heard of these, but it's probably best not to Google that. But Gomez's goal lies in the heart of the banana plantations, where an archaeologist has reported a new find. Poor Dr. Gomez. Can you imagine his first conversation when he meets someone? Oh, so you're a doctor. What's your specialty? Abby Gabors? For 50 years since the giant stone balls were first brought to their attention, archaeologists have travelled here hopefully, but none has arrived at any explanation of their purpose or their date. Oh, great, because... I'm pretty sure we're not going to get an explanation here either. In charge of this dig is Mike Snaskis. Hello, Mike. Wait. How are you? It's about time you're here. This is hard work. I imagine so in this heat. No, listen, uh, this is something. We found not only this one, which looks to be about the size of the one that's in the Palmar Airport. Obviously not happy with Dr. Gomez showing up right after the heavy digging is finished. Especially since it seems they've dug up three big balls. We probably have uh, the arrangement that we read about years ago of balls in line. Probably best not to Google that either. There's absolutely nothing to tell who made the spheres or when or why. Bewildered archaeologists can merely clutch at straws. The fact that they are in lines uh, brings into my mind the possibility that they represent 
actual maps of constellations, for instance. Uh, that's my favorite theory, but uh, I don't know what... Uh, Mike? 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 What are these balls doing here? Mike, uh, what do you think uh, these stone balls were made for? Well, Luis, that's uh, it's a difficult question. Now, uh, I, as an archaeologist, should know better than anyone what these balls represent. And, in fact, I know almost nothing. Marvelous. More than 1,500 giant stone balls have so far been found. The biggest, 8 feet across and weighing 16 tons. The granite they are made from has been brought from mountains many miles away. They are mathematically precise and must have taken years to grind down with nothing more than stone tools and abrasives. Today they are the Costa Rican equivalent of the garden gnome. That's a bit harsh. I always associate garden gnomes with lonely old ladies with too many cats. In half a century of painstaking work, not one real clue has emerged to explain the giant stone balls of Costa Rica. That's 50 years well spent. As you can see, we know nothing about the stone spheres. Uh, they remain and will remain for many years to come. A very true mystery. As long as he's working on it, I, I guess he's right. But Mysterious World has to move on quickly to the next subject before someone else does try and explain something. Dr. Arne Egebricht, director of the Hildesheim Museum, took us to Munich to an exhibition of treasures from ancient Iraq. Iraqi balls? There, modestly displayed, are three relics from old Baghdad. Dr. Egbrecht believes they prove that ancient people developed technology 2,000 years ahead of its time. I hope he's not looking for WMDs. These three curious objects were found in 1936 during excavations in Baghdad, in Iraq, and uh, they were found all together, one in the other, it looks like a thin clay pot and some other bits. Now, here you have first of all a ceramic pot, and in this pot was put this copper cylinder, and in this copper cylinder again, this iron rod was found. Hmm, I'm actually quite interested in this now. On top and uh, on the bottom of this copper cylinder, uh, there was found bitumen. And if you take all these things together, this can only mean for a scientist that you have here an electric cell or a battery. A 2,000-year-old battery? That is amazing. But I'd be more impressed if they found the 2,000-year-old appliance that it powered. But this is Arthur C. Clarke, and he doesn't have time to speculate on what it was used for. The TV show is off again. With American Richard Brinkerhoff, we walked on the very lintels of a great stone circle to investigate his theory that Stonehenge was an observatory. It's not. It's a shit circle of stones that some guys put together because they didn't have TV back then. And those few seconds is all they give on that subject. And the rude man of CERN may, after many centuries, yield up his true identity. The rude man of CERN is not actually its real name. Its proper name is the Cern Abbas Giant, and it's a huge chalk figure, 180 foot tall, carved into a hillside. Most notable is the massive erect penis, which has been measured at 36 foot long. Here, they actually do do some investigating, and ask some locals what they think about it. Well, I think he's a Celtic god, really. A sex symbol. That guy knows what he's talking about. We did have one girl that was... Uh been married for about seven years and uh, 
hadn't managed to have a child, so we told her to go and sit on the giant. Apparently, he was supposed to sit up Louis Nickers off. I don't know whether she did that or not. But uh, the next spring, she was pregnant. Mm, she might have some explaining to do. I look at him every day. I think he is a sex symbol because he does uh, wonders for me. <laughs> what exactly does the giant do for him? Unfortunately, we never find out because Arthur pops up again and is talking about something else. A mystery of the third kind is something where we just haven't a clue. It's absolutely unaccountable. I'm beginning to think that the second kind is something that Arthur can explain, but just won't. What would you think if this sort of thing happened to you? I was coming up this road, I was coming north, I was just about a block away, when all of a sudden a fish fell right to my right hand, the left hand side of the car. I saw the fish, saw the fish fall out of the sky. I kept driving, I was very amazed. And when I got here, at this location here, the yard was just absolutely covered with fish. And uh, I, I was amazed, I stopped. Well, I'd stop too. I mean, free fish. And just about that time, other people started, started getting here and everybody was just amazed at the whole thing and just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that the fish had just dropped out of the sky. That was in Louisiana. Then we go to the Midlands in England. We heard something thudding against the umbrella. And when we looked, to our amazement, it was a shower of frogs. And they still were coming from the skies. There were hundreds of them. Our umbrella was covered, all our shoulders were covered. And as we looked up, we could see them coming down like snowflakes. Green, slimy, living snowflakes. But then, quick as you like, we're whisked off to Southampton, England. We happened to be in the dining room, first of all. We heard this terrific clatter. It was an awful noise, wasn't it? Yes. We rushed <coughs> out and um, went down into the garden and presently a load of uh, broad bean seed came over and we both ducked. You <laughs> ducked down because they're, they're fairly big, broad bean seed. They are big seeds and they taste revolting. And uh, then you got a little bit annoyed about it, didn't you? <laughs> I turned round to the wife and I said, well, this is bloody silly. <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> this guy is obviously known for his biting wit. But it's not just fish, frogs and beans that have been raining on people. Looking around, we found they were in the middle of a shower of hazelnuts coming from the sky. And uh, they were dropping on the cars, falling in the gutter, and I should think there would be as many as we saw, about 350 of them. That's quite a precise estimation. And when you think about it, 350 hazelnuts, that doesn't really sound like that many. It was very clear, the sky was blue and uh, there was one small cloud there, but there was no aeroplanes or anything like that about for them to come down from there. How they came and where they came from, I have no idea, but I have thought that it might be a vortex that sucked them up, but I don't know where you suck up hazelnuts in March. Everyone knows March isn't nut vortex season, that's more likely to be in September. But again, we're left with no possible explanation and Arthur is back on the beach to give us this. Our universe is such a strange and wonderful place that reality will always outrun the wildest imagination. Well, thanks, Arthur C. Clarke. Thanks for nothing. Episode 42, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World.
The Epilogue. So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that fish cops are braver than people cops. And poor John Fraser didn't, and he was scared stiff. We learnt that the Cernabus giant has some real fans. I look at him every day. I think he is a sex symbol, because he does uh, wonders for me. <laughs> and we learnt that Arthur C. Clarke is kind of full of shit. Our universe is such a strange and wonderful place that reality will always outrun the wildest imagination. When I was a kid, this show was a highlight of my weekly viewing. I guess that's not such a shock since here in the UK in 1980 we only had three channels. We'd literally watch anything. But I was genuinely excited when a clip of it appeared on my Facebook timeline. But this certainly has not aged as well as 2001 A Space Odyssey. They made 13 episodes of this, and clearly, not satisfied with that, they made Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Universe in the 1990s. And he hardly appears in that one at all. It seems that these shows didn't want to shed light on any mysteries. I think this was just a way to finance Arthur's beach pad while he lays on a bed made for, out of 2001 A Space Odyssey money. I wish I hadn't seen this again. My childhood has been ruined. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. Special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Things happen.